Before we look at uh, our text, I just want to mention you'll see in your bulletin that Kathy Thompson is transitioning out of her role. She would hate me to say anything publicly, so I'm not going to do it except <laughs> to say she's served here for a long time in the role of treasurer. She spent more hours than any of us know or that she remembers, and she's been faithful in her work. And I, for one, and I'm sure you, too, are very grateful to her for all that she's done. You can yell at me later. <laughs> and the thing is, she will. <laughs> <That's>... <laughs> Have you ever finished writing an email or making an announcement? <laughs> now, writing an email or, or, or a text, and you push the send button, and then immediately you have sender's regret. You just did it, and you think, maybe I was wrong. Maybe I was too harsh. Maybe he's never going to talk to me again. With the push of that button, maybe I just ruined a long-standing relationship. Well, when St. Paul finished writing the letter to the Galatians, he didn't have a button to push, but he did send a courier. Now, there's no information to suggest he experienced sender's regret, yet this is the harshest of all of his biblical letters. When he said it, he was very upset with the Galatian church, a church he founded. And he was upset with them for turning away from the gospel that he proclaimed and that they had professed. Now, when we read it all these years later, we're liable to think he was angry because the church chose a competing theological view over his, as if what was at stake here was some kind of theological opinion. That might even be what the Galatians thought when they received the letter and read it, but it wasn't at all what St. Paul was thinking. You might as well say that a U.S. officer at the Battle of the Bulge was angry at his soldiers for defecting because they thought that the Nazis had better styled uniforms. For St. Paul, this is not a scholastic debate. It's a matter of life or death, of loyalty or betrayal, of victory or defeat. He was angry in the same way for the same reason my imaginary officer would be angry at his soldiers for defecting. Now, most of his anger in the letter is directed at the people who deceived his friends, deceived him into thinking that they were doing the right thing, he, he tries to impress on the church the enormity of the error they've made, show them where their thinking has gone wrong, and bring them back into service to Christ. Now, our passage today is often taught during the Christmas season. In Galatians chapter 3, uh, we're going to look at verses 23 through 25, and then we'll skip down to chapter 4 and read verses 1 through 7. So would you follow along as I do that? Galatians three twenty-three. Before this faith came... We were held prisoners by the law, locked up until faith should be revealed. So the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ so that we might be justified by faith. Now that faith has come, we're no longer under the supervision of the law. Now this is verse 1, chapter 4. What I'm saying is that as long as the heir is a child, he's no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. He's subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also, when we were children, we were in slavery under the basic principles of the world. But when the time had fully come, the time set by the father, 
God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under law, that we might receive the full rights of sons. Because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but a son. And since you're a son, God has made you also an heir. Let me give you some background. Paul had traveled through the Galatia region of Asia Minor, which would be in modern-day Turkey, challenging people to come over to God's side by acknowledging his son Jesus as the rightful ruler of the world and submitting to him. When people responded, Paul helped them organize a church, which is another way of saying he helped them set up an outpost of God's kingdom in Galatia. After the church became functional for the kingdom of God, after they got started and now they're working for the kingdom, Paul continued on his mission and eventually came all full circle back to his home base. It was only then that he heard the Galatians had changed uniforms. He could hardly believe it. I'm astonished, he says, that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. In chapter 3, he says, did somebody put you under a spell? Someone must have bewitched you. What happened to you? The Galatians had been duped. And it happened because they didn't understand what God was doing in the world or how that related to faith in Jesus. Because they didn't understand these things, they fell prey to slick teachers who diverted them from a wholehearted devotion to Jesus to a misguided commitment to religion, a commitment that, not surprisingly, served the personal ambitions of those same teachers. That same kind of thing goes on today, just as it did then, and for the same reasons, because people don't understand what God is doing in the world and how faith in in Jesus relates to that. And so, they think of faith in Jesus as a religion when it's really more like a revolution. Paul understood something that neither the Galatians nor their slick teachers grasped, and that was this. Everything changed when Jesus came to earth. Christmas, not talking about the holiday, but the birth of Jesus, changed the world. Within the church and without, Christmas is mostly thought of as a religious holiday, but that's not at all how St. Paul thought of it. His celebration of Christmas, if he celebrated at all, and we don't have any evidence that the church celebrated Christmas for the first couple hundred years, but if he celebrated Christmas, his celebration was more like our commemoration of D-Day. He understood that the birth of Christ was an invasion a daring foray by God himself into enemy-held territory to take it back for himself and to rescue the people who belong to him. Because the Galatians underestimated the difference that the coming of Jesus made, they didn't appreciate what was at risk. Christmas was not a one-and-done thing any more than D-Day was a one-and-done thing. The birth of Jesus marked the beginning of a mission that continued through Paul's day and right into ours. The mission's still going on. 
for the Galatians to come to faith in Jesus and then turn back to religion would be like the Allies landing on the beaches of Normandy on December 6, 1944, setting out a few flags, and then getting back in their ships and heading back to England, as if the mission were accomplished. We make the same kind of mistake when we celebrate Christmas as if it were some standalone holiday, given a little religious flavoring. It's not enough to say Jesus is the reason for the season. Jesus is the reason for everything. Christmas may have come and gone, but the mission continues. And if you have faith in Jesus, you're part of it. As far as Paul was concerned, the coming of Christ into the world was the turning point of all history. It's the hinge on which history turns. Everything changed when he came on the scene. For the Galatians to try to go back to the way things were before Christ, which is what you see happening in the book of Galatians, was not only foolish, it was impossible. It would be as if people living in America after the War of Independence went back to living under English law and paying taxes to King George III. Now, if they wanted to send him their money, there's no doubt that he would take it. But they weren't going to get anything in return. That ship had sailed. In this part of the letter, <clears throat> Paul tells the Galatians that the previous order was temporary and provisional by design. That was always the plan. The Jews were governed by the law of Moses, while the Gentiles, this is chapter 4, verse 3, were enslaved by the basic principles of the world. But either way, both were boxed in. They were locked up, as Paul put it in chapter 3. Now, that wasn't all bad. That was good in one way, but it was bad in another. It was good because it maintained order and limited the harm that people could do to one another. But it was bad because people would never reach their potential under those conditions. They couldn't become what God created them to be, this extraordinary, new-to-the-galaxy creation. Now, that was true for both Jews and Gentiles, but their situations were different. And so let me illustrate in a couple of different ways. First, the Gentiles. The Gentiles were not under the law of Moses. They were subject to hostile forces what he calls the basic principles of the world, and another place that seems to be nearly synonymous with principalities and powers. So let me illustrate. Saddam Hussein was the president of Iraq from 1979 to 2003. He was cruel, a self-seeking tyrant who terrorized his own people. But that's not to say that he did no good for more than two decades, he kept Sunnis and Shias from killing each other and from killing Christians. That's the way it was with the basic principles of the world, the principalities and powers. They were illegitimate rulers of God's creation, cruel and self-seeking, and yet they restrained some forms of evil when it served their purpose. For the Jews, it's very different. So we need a different illustration. God had given them the law to govern them, and it was not cruel or self-seeking, but it was provisional. 
That's what the Galatians missed. The law served the Jewish people in a capacity similar to that of King Josiah's counselors. That story is told in, in 1 Kings and in 2 Chronicles. King Josiah was eight years old when he ascended to the throne. Eight years old. But the provisional government was kept in place until Josiah was capable of ruling. The people in that provisional government may have been noble and just. They may have had the nations and the king's best interests at heart. Nevertheless, their rule was provisional and temporary and set to expire when the king became capable of governing without them. And so it was with the law, which was, as St. Paul says elsewhere, holy, righteous, and good. Holy, righteous. He never says a bad thing about the law, ever. Holy, righteous, and good but not permanent. It governed and protected God's people until the coming of the true king, Jesus. That's why Paul says in verse 25, now that faith has come, we are no longer under the supervision of the law. Just as the provisional government finished its work when Josiah became old enough to rule, so the law finished its work when Christ came to rule. Now, by writing this, Paul is making the position of the law clear to people who are all confused about it. It did not, so these are Gentiles, but they want to be like the Jewish people and come back under the law. He lets them know that the Jewish people were not given spiritual birth through the law. They were given spiritual guidance. They were not born again through the law. They were brought up by it. That's the point of chapter 3, verse 24 where Paul writes, the law was put in charge. Literally, the law was our pedagogue to lead us to Christ. Now, in our day, a pedagogue refers to a teacher. And in that day, it was a little different. A pedagogue was usually almost always a man who was a, either a free man or a slave to a wealthy family. And he served them by being their child's overseer, protector, tutor. He would take the child back and forth to school, make sure the child didn't get into trouble. When the child was behaving in an ill-mannered way, he would straighten that child out. Paul is saying that's what the law did for the Jewish people. See, when the children were grown and they no longer needed an overseer, protector, tutor, that servant's role changed. And Paul is saying the same is true of the law. Is it still valuable? Yes, but it doesn't serve the same role. The role of the law has changed. Now that seems to me patently obvious. It's no longer possible even for a devoted Jew to practice the faith as the law directed. There's no longer an altar or a priesthood. There's no sacrifice, no temple, no king. These things found their fulfillment in Christ, which is why Paul told the Romans that Christ is the end of the law. That is, Christ is the goal to which the law led. Once he had come and people had put their faith in him, the law's primary purpose had been served. And it was time for a change of role. When you read Galatians, when you read this passage, 
a more complete picture of what happened at Christmas begins to emerge. Christmas is not something that happened upon a midnight clear during a cold winter's night that was so deep and then was over. It was part of a plan, a plan that spanned a thousand generations. It was just one moment, though absolutely crucial and unimaginably costly. One moment, movement, and a campaign to retake the world and establish Christ as its universally recognized ruler. You'd never know that from the way most of us celebrate Christmas. The way we celebrate Christmas, when it's over, we are dull and tired and usually broke. But our celebration of Christmas should leave us inspired and re-energized for the mission. It's the mission that Christmas is about. Look at verse 4. When the time had fully come, God sent his son. Now, we just celebrated Christ's birth on December 25th. But you know, right, that no one really knows when Jesus was born. We don't know what time of the year it is. Serious scholars have suggested alternative dates for every single month of the year based on the evidence they find in Scripture. So we don't know the right time of the year. What we do know is that his birth came at the right time in history. It was when the time had fully come. In what sense had the time fully come? Well, here are some possibilities. The time had fully come because Greek had become the common language spoken throughout the Western world, which made it possible for the good news of what God had done through Jesus to be understood by people everywhere, people from different countries. Prior to this, there had never been a single language in the history of the world that so many people understood. Another thing, Roman rule now extended from Britain in the west all the way to India in the east, from Europe in the north to Africa in the south, and the Romans were terrific road builders. For the first time in history, people could travel internationally by road, which meant that the good news of the saving God could be carried into the far-flung provinces of the world. Further, if Christ had come 60 years earlier, the world would have been embroiled in this terrible war. If he'd come a couple hundred years later, the world would have been at war again. But Jesus was born during the Pax Romana, the Roman peace, in which the empire enforced peace, forced peace between previously warring nations. In terms of the mission, this was the strategic time for Christ to come. And this is mission terminology that's been being used here. The word in chapter 4, verse 4, that's translated God sent his son, is more literally God sent out and is used for sending someone on a mission. This is what we might miss. Among the sites of history's most famous invasions, Marathon, Pevensey, the Somme Valley, Normandy, Guam, Bethlehem holds the preeminent place. And Bethlehem's baby is the most powerful force to ever enter the world. The angel army that filled the skies that night was not singing, Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas. They were chanting a marching song. And by the way, Scripture doesn't say they were singing. 
they were saying, like the cadence in a march. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests. What was this mission intended to accomplish? Mission Bethlehem. What's the big picture? The mission was intended to recruit new agents for God's side and outfit them for, a, for the mission in a radically new way. Each one, each person, for the first time ever, would be supplied with the Spirit of God. That's chapter 4, verse 6. That was groundbreaking. These new agents would turn the tide, an army of men and women directly under the command of and empowered by God himself through his spirit. The men and women who are given the spirit of God, verse 6, are adopted as sons. Now I say men and women are adopted as sons, both men and women. That women could share the status of heirs with men was almost unheard of in the first century. Some versions want to get rid of that word sons because it sounds uh, gender, uh, what would be the word, inconsiderate. But that is an important word here because it has to do with the inheritance. And now both men and women could be heirs, but heirs of what? What do they inherit? What's at stake in this mission? The Bible describes it in a variety of ways, rich ways. They inherit a better country, an enduring city, a kingdom that cannot be shaken. They inherit life in a new body on a new earth, and they share the inheritance with Christ himself as co-heirs. And when the mission is over, what happens then? What can we expect? Where will it lead? It will lead, as Paul says elsewhere, to the day when all things in heaven and on earth are brought together under one head, even Christ. See, this mission is not mission impossible, it's mission inevitable. It will succeed. And then the old order of things, of injustice and evil, of suffering and decay will pass away and the new age will begin, and we ourselves will be made new. This is only possible because God sent his son at the invasion of Bethlehem. That we have a role in the mission, that we share in its glory, and carry within us the knowledge that we've done something worth remembering is a total grace and mercy of God. We're part. We're part of the biggest thing that ever happened just because of his grace. I heard someone say this morning something about being glad that Christmas was over. <laughs> you know, Christmas come and gone. But the mission goes on. Be a part of it. And serve the king. Let's pray together.
God give us our orders? Give us what we need to follow them. In our day again, Lord, turn the world upside down. And do it for the sake of the Lord, Jesus, through whom we pray. Amen. Let's stand together and we'll sing.